Jesus fulfills the end to which he was born, taking upon him the sins of the world. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. here we are. We've arrived at the lesson that every gospel doctrine teacher fears, the lesson on the atonement. And the reason we all fear it is because there's no possible way to do this subject justice. Uh, And it's also really hard to come up with anything new to say about the atonement. We've all heard it so many times. And the real challenge is to truly feel the, the depth of Christ's suffering and love for us as we talk about it. However, I have thought a lot about it, and I have some thoughts to offer that I hope will be beneficial. This is lesson number 23 in our uh, Come Follow Me New Testament manual, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 18, not as I will, but as thou wilt. As always, should you care to contact the program, email me at gt at or inbox me on Facebook. And as always, your five-star reviews on Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes help more people to find our program. They're much appreciated. Now, at the beginning of the lesson, I want to talk about a subject that interests me, uh, not as much perhaps as scripture, but it's a nerdy subject nonetheless, uh, and that's astronomy. I promise there's a point to this later, uh, but I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some astronomical ideas and first idea that I'll talk about is the idea of a barycenter. So not a lot of people are aware that the, that the moon doesn't actually orbit the earth, or the, cent- the moon doesn't orbit the center of the earth, let's put it that way. The moon and the earth both orbit a point that is the center of gravity of what's called a two-body system. So the moon has a small amount of mass compared to the Earth. Nevertheless, it has a fairly significant portion of it, one-sixth, I think. And the moon, as it, as it travels around the Earth, pulls the Earth out of where it would have been otherwise. It's as if you were to pick up a small child and lean backwards a little bit in order to swing that child around in a circle. You couldn't do it without leaning backwards. You'd fall forwards. If you've ever tried it, you know. And so that little bit that you have to lean backward in order to keep the child fully extended out in front of you is the amount that the Earth has to move in order to keep the moon in orbit around it. And that point, the barycenter, around which both bodies orbit, is about 3,000 miles from the center of the Earth. Now, recently scientists have identified the smallest black hole they've ever found anywhere. And the best guess is that it has about four times the mass of our sun and the what's called the Schwarzschild radius, or the blackness of the black hole, is only 15 miles across. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny celestial body, and it has four times the mass of our sun. Now, the Earth also exists in a two-body system with the sun, but the effect of the Earth on the sun is vastly less significant than the effect of the moon on the Earth. The Earth does not pull the sun out of its orbit to any measurable degree. So I want you to imagine that someone was able to, with, with infinite power, was able to move one of these 
massive black holes, but tiny black holes next to the Earth. And it's 15 miles in diameter. And you set one of them orbiting around the other. And then you observe what happens. Now, the fact that this little black hole is only 15 miles across and the Earth is 8,000 miles in diameter would lead you to believe that it's going to be this little black hole that would orbit around the Earth. But in fact, in this particular two-body problem, the effect of the Earth on this black hole would be immeasurable. You would not be able to see any movement uh, by our measurements in the orbit or in the motion of this black hole because of the orbiting of the Earth. And that's if the Earth were far enough out to not fall in and be destroyed. So that's, a, that's an idea I want you to think about and, and ponder as I talk about the rest of the lesson. I'll tie it in at the end. And uh, I hope you'll forgive me for indulging one of my other passions. So uh, we're going to talk today about the Last Supper Uh, Last week we talked about John's version of the Last Supper, but it was really about the discussion after the Last Supper. So this week, it's the Last Supper and the institution of the sacrament. The atonement itself, which occurred in the Garden of Gethsemane, or which began in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. So those are the events that we'll cover. And they're covered in all four Gospels, and they're... um, Something that is pretty rare is that we have one chapter from each gospel and they pretty much mirror each other, the same events in each of these chapters. So it's it's one chapter from each gospel where the same thing is going on uh, for once in all of the gospels, I think. Um, there are a couple of minor variations and we'll go over those. So this begins, I, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of weeks ago we talked about Jesus having arranged things almost, and I, to me, the idea came up of a wedding planner, and I think it's specifically or uh, particularly appropriate that Jesus arranged the final week of his life and certain events with meticulous planning, and I thought he almost planned it like he was planning a wedding with attention to detail, and then I realized he was planning a wedding. If you remember the book of Hosea, Hosea makes the comparison of the faithlessness of Israel to that of a faithless wife. And in fact, commands Hosea, God commands Hosea to marry a prostitute and have children with her. And the, the object lesson is that as painful as it is for him to be with someone who's unfaithful, or at least who was unfaithful, um, that's how painful it is for God to deal with an unfaithful people that keep going back to idol worship and other forms of idolatry. Well, uh, conversely, so many times throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God spoke of his marriage uh, to, the, to the people of Israel as one of, or, or his relationship to the people of Israel as a marriage, and of himself as the bridegroom, and of them as the bride. And so that is, and in fact, in the book of Ephesians and other places in the New Testament, that imagery is continued. And uh, in fact, Paul says, husbands love your wives even as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it, right? So this is not a new idea. So in in one sense, Jesus was in fact planning his wedding. And he was, uh, in, in any case, Jesus sends his disciples into the city 
we see another example of this. Uh, he says, prepare our Passover meal. And they say, how should we prepare? And he says, walk into the city and you'll see a certain man carrying some water on his head. And when you, when you see him, uh, follow him and wherever he goes, go in. There will be a master of the house there and he'll have an upper room furnished and prepared. And there, tonight, we're going to have the, our Passover meal, so prepare the meal there. And they go and they find that exactly how it was. And so Jesus, just as he had arranged to ride into town on a donkey, and he had arranged to have his disciples go and ask a certain way and give little code words, um, he's doing it again here. And it shows that he had given great attention to detail, either in the preceding weeks or in the preceding months. He had established relationships. He knew everything that he was going to accomplish to fulfill the prophecies about him. And so there's so much of this that is just simply not recorded in the Gospels that Jesus must have been involved in. And all of the things that he saw coming. And the question for us is, at what point did he know everything that was going to happen? There does seem, in this lesson particularly, there does seem to have been some surprises for Jesus. He knew for a long time and had been telling his disciples that he would be suffering and dying. And yet, when the moment came, he, he didn't say, that, ah, I knew exactly how this was going to be. He said, God, let this cup pass from me. And so that lets us know that there was at least that element of surprise in, in the in how difficult, in the difficulty there was in accomplishing the work when it actually came to it. Okay, um, before, the, before the Last Supper, uh, we should, I think, deal with the question of timing. So John, he explained that Jesus had a meal in the house of Simon the week before, or before his triumphal entry, and here in Matthew 26, Matthew describes this as just a couple of days before the, the Last Supper. Well, we're going we're gonna to push those elements of timing aside, but we're going to talk about, again, this meal that Jesus had, um, because we can't really a- answer the questions of timing. We don't know exactly when this happened, and the fact that people have inconsistent memories about it uh, doesn't present that great of a challenge for me. Uh, a lot of times these Gospels were written years or even decades later. My guess is that John has the right of it since he, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult because Matthew was also there, but John wrote last, and so we can guess that he probably saw maybe a mistake in the timing in Matthew's record and wanted to correct it, or maybe he's the one who made the error, or maybe there's some, uh, some other explanation. But in any case, Charlie asks the question, uh, so Jesus, again, we see Jesus eating in the house of a man named Simon, as in Luke chapter 7. If you remember, Jesus in that chapter ate in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And again, like as in that chapter, a woman comes in, anoints Jesus, and then is frowned upon and disapproved of by the men who are observing. So Charlie's question, and this is actually a question that is asked by biblical scholars, are these two events the same? Have they been conflated by the writers of the Gospels? And I'll give you uh, my opinion and that is, so there are, enough, there are enough details that separate these two events that there is, in my mind, no reason to conflate them. Number one, the two Simons are different. One is called Simon the leper. And in one gospel, he's mentioned as being the father of Judas Iscariot. 
And I wonder that knowing a man like Jesus, this last week we talked about what could possibly motivate Judas to betray Jesus. He was given 30 pieces of silver by the leaders of the Jews, which would amount to, let's say, between somewhere between three and $5,000 in today's money. And that's a lot of money, but it doesn't change your life. It doesn't make you want to murder a friend. So we, we kind of considered the question, what, what could possibly have Judas been thinking? Um, one idea is that Simon was not healed by Jesus because, and I don't know this, but um, I was just thinking about this, reading this, uh, this account again today. Simon was called Simon the leper, so he must have still been a leper, or maybe he was once past a leper. So the question is, was he, was he a, a former leper, or was he someone that the followers of Jesus agreed they could be around even though he was ritually impure, and he remained a leper, and he didn't have the faith to be healed by Jesus? And if so, was, was Judas made bitter by that fact that G- Jesus you know, perhaps seemed unwilling to heal his father from his leprosy? Just one idea. In any case, they're eating in the house of Simon the leper, and the this woman comes in, whom we know to be Mary because of John's account. Uh, Mary, the friend of Jesus. You remember Mary and Martha, who one who sat at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach, and the other who was busy entertaining. Uh, that It's that particular Mary. So it's not Mary Magdalene. It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but it's the third Mary. And she anoints Jesus with this costly, costly ointment. And and, uh, there is some disagreement as to whether she anoints his feet or his head. And if she anoints his feet, it's even more similar to the account in Luke. But in any case, uh, then she's rebuked because it's very expensive ointment. Now in the Luke account, it's Simon the Pharisee. And this happens in Capernaum or somewhere nearby up in Galilee. And this is happening in Jerusalem or in Bethany. Um, and the woman is given a name, whereas the woman in Luke chapter 7 is not given a name. There's no reason to think that the that Mary, the sister of Martha, Martha and Lazarus, was a sinner as that woman is described as being. So I hope that answers your question, uh, Charlie. Thank you for that. And I hope you'll notice that you sent me that question weeks ago, and I saved it. So... That let that be a lesson to all of you that I, I do read your questions and even if it's about an upcoming lesson I I try to remember and and I think they're important. So Jesus has this dinner in the house of uh, Simon the the leper and then we don't in our lesson today we don't really deal with the events of the Holy Week because we we sort of flashed forward and did that at Easter time. And so we skip right to the end of Holy Week and the the Last Supper. Now the event of the Last Supper, the the crowning event of the Last Supper that we didn't deal with last week was the institution of the sacrament. And I think it would be worthwhile right now to talk about some of the imagery and the symbolism in the meal of the Last Supper. A couple of weeks ago, there was so much material in the lesson that I had to do a double lesson. And the only other time I've done that is when we actually covered the Passover, because there is just so much to learn. So I can't really do it justice, but briefly, the the Jews, when they when the day came for them to depart from Egypt, they'd had all these plagues, and the plagues were targeted. There were ten plagues, nine plagues targeted specifically at each plague target at a different 
Egyptian deity to show that God was superior to their entire pantheon. And finally, the final plague was targeted at Pharaoh himself. And the Jews had to perform a ritual in order to escape this particular plague, where they had not had to do that before. And this ritual involved spreading lamb's blood on the posts and the lintel of their, of their doors. And if they would do this and remain inside, then their animals would be spared and their children would be spared. Otherwise, their firstborn would be struck down and killed. And then they had to be ready, so they prepared this meal, they ate the lamb, and then they cooked their bread with no yeast. And the, the whole point of this meal, the way it was prepared, was to show that they were leaving in haste. So their bread wasn't allowed to rise. There was no yeast because they were leaving in such a hurry they couldn't let it rise. They had to eat their meal standing up with their shoes on their feet. And they ate bitter herbs to symbolize the bitterness of the slavery that they suffered in Egypt. There were other things involved, um, such as questions. When your children shall in one, one day in the future generation ask, why do we eat? Why is this night so different from other nights? And why do we eat bitter herbs? And, and God told them how to answer those questions. And that form, that, that Exodus form, thousands of years old, is still observed to this day, every Passover. And this is what Jesus, this is the meal that Jesus would have been eating with his disciples. So he would have been eating this very unleavened bread when he broke it and blessed it and gave it to his disciples. Now again, as we mentioned last time, uh, it's not always obvious when Jesus is using the priesthood. So he prays for the bread, just like he prayed for the bread another Passover when he multiplied that bread and it fed 5,000 people. So he didn't say, by the power of the priesthood, you know, I command this bread to be multiplied. He just prayed. And that's Jesus exercising the priesthood because he is the priesthood. So when he prays, when Jesus prays to the Father and says, bless this bread, he hands it out to the disciples. To him, that's as natural as you and I talking or breathing because there is no act, I believe, that Jesus performs that doesn't involve some aspect of the priesthood, since he's basically the embodiment of the priesthood. Now let's talk about what he means. Jesus says in the um, in Mark chapter 14, so we're talking about pretty much the fact that all these chapters relate the same events, we're talking about pretty much all the chapters at once. So I'll jump back and forth between the Gospels. But in Mark chapter 14, verse 24, Jesus, when Jesus gives them the cup of wine, he says, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Now, what does he mean by this? There's a scripture that I've made much of when talking about what the New Testament is. And if you, if you go back to the first lesson that we did on the New Testament, uh, you'll remember this is Jeremiah chapter 31. And in that chapter, Jeremiah said, there will come a day when I will make a new covenant. And in case you're not aware, the word testament means covenant. This, this particular, 31, 31 is the chapter and verse of Jeremiah. This particular passage is the most specific that there is in the entire Old Testament about what it's gonna look like when Jesus comes and, and the most predictive of the sacrament. And he talks exactly, specifically about what he is going to do to Israel in order to make them ready for it. I'm going to plant my law in their hearts, and I'm going to change their hearts 
So we, we made a big deal out of this also when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus was beginning that process. And the fact that the New Testament, when it was called the New Testament, then the, old, then the Hebrew Scriptures were renamed to the Old Testament. And this was a, this, I don't know um, if you, most of you are aware, but when you write a book, you don't get to choose the title. Your publisher will choose the title because the title is a huge part of the marketing of that book. And then the New Testament, that title is in that same tradition. It's marketing. It's the, the attempt by early Christians to show that the Hebrew scriptures were one manifestation of God's covenant with his people and that the scriptures that describe Jesus and the writings of his disciples were another manifestation of that covenant and therefore calling it the New Testament was brilliant marketing for the new religion of Christianity that was emerging to show that the promise of Jeremiah chapter 31 where he would make a new covenant and he would he would write his law on the hearts of his people and, and begin to actually change them so that they would be obedient instead of showing up in the same way that they always did throughout their entire history of returning so quickly to idolatry. That was what was going to happen one day. And Jesus, so that's, that's the fulfillment. This is the literal fulfillment of that promise in Jeremiah chapter 31. I encourage you to read those few verses surrounding that passage. Uh, if you want to understand what the ancient Jews would have understood from the sacrament. And I believe that Jesus' disciples probably recognized what was happening when he described when Jesus described the meaning of the of the wine and the bread. And I might uh, I might alternate between calling this the water and the wine, and that's because uh, in some of my notes I've written water. But I did that uh, I didn't erase it all because I think it's appropriate to talk about the water and the wine, both as symbols of sacrament, not only because we observe with water uh, in the latter days, but also because Jesus explicitly tied the water to the, his covenant and also tied water to wine. If you remember in John chapter 2, we made a big deal out of why Jesus had turned water into wine and what that meant what the wine meant and what the water meant. And Jesus has called, when, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, he called what he, his doctrine that he would give her and what he would teach her and the faith that he would instill within her, he called it living water. And then later on, in one of his final festival visits to Jerusalem, Jesus talked about himself as the living water. And he was drawing a parallel between himself, in, in my opinion, and a couple of Old Testament passages, one where Moses struck the rock and water ushered forth, gushed forth and, and uh, allowed all of the fleeing slaves from Egypt to avoid dying of thirst in the desert. And also the water flowing from the temple in Ezekiel chapter 47, this living water that heals wherever it runs. And by the time it reaches the Dead Sea, it turns that in- entire area into a, para, into a green paradise instead of a barren desert, as it is now. And so those are the manifestations of living water that we've seen it before now in the scriptures. And the fact that Jesus turned water into wine was his attempt to tie wine to water. Now, wine has the additional property of being red like blood. 
So it very closely resembles that which it is meant to represent, which is the blood of Jesus, which is shed for many. So in that sense, it's an even more potent symbol, but it's also tied to water. So in either case, they're appropriate symbols for the sacrament of Jesus. Now, the meaning of the bread, uh, again, Jesus has discussed himself as the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And at the time when we discuss the bread of life discourse, that's in John chapter 6, we talked about the fact that Jesus had given the, to all who would believe on his name the ability to be born of God. And so in this chapter, John 6, Jesus talks about manna in the wilderness and then the fact that those who ate it died. So even though their food was, their earthly food was provided by God, those who ate it hungered again. And Jesus could slake this hunger forever by providing living bread or the bread of life. So in both cases, Jesus promises that the desire for what he offers will go away once, once you eat it or once you drink it. It would last forever. It would keep you alive forever. And it, it becomes clear as we examine the imagery that he used that he's talking about belief and faith on him to the point where it, that belief and faith can alter our decisions that we would choose to follow his words and love him. And then once we do that, we no longer hunger and thirst after righteousness, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus also, this, the, the image of bread comes up in the bread that Jesus refused in the wilderness. He refused to turn the rocks into bread. And he actually used um, a language from the book of Exodus in refusing to do that. Again, the Exodus is evoked in the imagery of the bread because Jesus is breaking this very unleavened bread that they're eating to remember the haste with which their people let, left Egypt. And so the bread that symbolizes escape from slavery, and it's so obvious in every account of the Exodus that Egypt, the slavery to Egypt represents slavery to sin. And so this, this bread represents urgency with which we should run away from sin. And it's so wonderful. So the bread, in fact, is it's interesting because the bread is usually the image of Jesus's body. And when Jesus was resurrected, we are promised to participate in that resurrection and gain one day a perfected body. So that's a that's a almost, you would say, a physical blessing. And yet, the bread, when, when we see that image from the Passover, the bread represents spiritual freedom as well. So it's not just a temporal blessing, it's a spiritual and temporal blessing. They both are, the, both the bread and the water, even though the bread represents the atonement, or the resurrection and the blood represents the atonement, uh, they're both physical and spiritual blessings. So here's Jesus instituting uh, an uh, an ordinance of the gospel, an ordinance of the priesthood. We talked last week about how the how God. We actually, I I gave my opinion, I gave my conjecture, my speculation about why God chooses certain symbols to put into our ordinances. We talked specifically about baptism, and then about the washing of the feet, and now we're talking about why God would choose bread and wine to be his symbols of the sacrament. He could have done anything. Again, 
we, we're looking at the gospel from the context of people who have been living it for a long time, or at least have been aware of its forms for a long time. We don't think about why things are the way they are, but if we do, we recognize God could have chosen any symbols to have as our remembrance of his sacrifice, and he chose bread and wine. And so we're discussing a little bit about why that might be, and those are my ideas. So Jesus has this discussion with the disciples, and then they all adjourn and follow him to the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked last week about how the garden, the fact that Jesus chose a garden, was Genesis imagery, Jesus leading us back through the fall, reversing the fall to the presence of our Heavenly Father. I mean, think about all of the places Jesus could have gone. He could have stayed in the upper room and performed the atonement there. He could have gone to the temple, and we already have seen that he doesn't fear the physical, the guards or the the physical presence of the priests around the temple. He could have gone to the holiest place in Judaism and gone into the Holy of Holies itself and performed the atonement. But he chose not to do that. He chose to go into a garden, which showed that, number one, the, the authority that governed that temple was on its way out. And we'll see, as we discuss the crucifixion, that it's within a few hours of being taken from the earth. And secondly, the idea that we can be brought back into the presence of our Heavenly Father the same way we left. And as Paul expressed, I think more clearly, he said, as in it, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So it was a well-known idea that it was Christ's job to undo the fall. And as Elder Uchtdorf stated in his uh, talk, The Gift of Grace, in April 2015, I believe, he said that the atonement, if, the, if all the atonement does is to take us, is undo the fall, then God's vision for us will not be fulfilled. It's not taking us backwards, it's lifting us upward. And that was uh, Elder Uchtdorf's idea, that was his idea and expression of what the atonement does for us. So it, it, in one sense, we're going backwards, undoing the effects of the fall, but really we're going through And much like the children of Israel, they descended down into the Red Sea. They didn't come back into the Egypt side, but they did then arise out of the depths of the sea and come from the seabed to the shore on the other side. And so they were in one state when they went into the water. They were in another state when they came out. That's that's what I wanted to express about the, the sacrament. So Jesus instituting the sacrament, such an important event. And he says at the time, he says, I'm not going to take the sacrament again until I drink it, or I'm not going to drink this wine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of my Father. Joseph Smith has said that there will be a sacrament meeting in the time attending the, uh, surrounding the second coming of Jesus in the meadow of Adam on Diamon. And he's actually prophesied about who will be present in that meeting. Uh, that will be, I don't know what the circumstance, all of the circumstances that will govern and who will be in attendance, but there's a song, uh, a Latter-day hymn, that maybe may we be worthy uh, to be one of those that surrounds the board when, again, we partake of the sacrament of our Lord. And that's, the board is the, 
is the table that would hold those emblems of Jesus's sacrifice, the sacramental emblems. Now, I don't know if there's some significance in the fact that Jesus only took the sacrament before the atonement, before it actually had something uh, to symbolize, or when it was a forward-looking symbol rather than a backward-looking symbol. You and I take the sacrament as a backward-looking symbol to remember something that already happened. Jesus partook of it when it was still a forward-looking symbol. And the, you, may, you may even conjecture that the law of Moses had not yet been fulfilled, and Jesus was already instituting the ordinances of the higher law. And so both covenants, both testaments, were in effect. And then he won't partake of it again until the earth has been returned, at least partially, to a terrestrial state. And Jesus has come again to the earth, and God's will reigns on the earth. And so in this celestial state, after his atonement, Jesus won't partake of the sacrament. I thought a little bit about what the the significance of that might be, and I couldn't come up with any ideas, but I welcome your comments on that question. So Jesus adjourns to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas knows that this is a place that he likes to go. So we'll talk in a minute about what happens when Judas arrives with the soldiers. But first of all, I wanted to, I have some personal thoughts about the atonement that have occurred to me over the last year, and I want to share them with you. They are my own thoughts. They are my own opinions. I, ha- I don't have a whole lot of scriptural justification for it. And yet, it's something that I believe firmly. And I think some of you will say, well, I don't think that's true. I think some of you will say, oh, wow, that's interesting. I never thought of that. And I think some of you will say, well, that's obvious. Everybody knows that. So maybe it's profound. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. It's something that I like to think, and it's something that I believe. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is. Uh, First of all, as I have learned the connection between the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, one of the ideas that has stuck most consistently in my mind is that when Jesus was, uh, when when Matthew is talking about Jesus, he he says early on in the book of Matthew, he, he says that the Scripture might be fulfilled that uh, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and then he says um, that his name will be Emmanuel, right? This, this, the fulfillment of this scripture in Isaiah, that his name will be God with us. But surrounding that name, that naming of Jesus, are the events of, and this is not all in Matthew, some of this is spread throughout the Gospels, but surrounding Jesus being given that name is Jesus being born into the humblest of circumstances, born into a manger. And then Jesus, uh, very shortly after his birth, being pursued by agents of the government with a price on his head. He's marked for death. And he's, you know, so he's born into poverty and ignominy. And then he's pursued by soldiers. And then he's forced to be a refugee and then in exile. So his life and his, that of his parents and that of his family is a difficult, difficult life. So to me, it seems clear that the name Emmanuel is not meant to be that God is going to reach down from heaven and lift us out of our problems, but that God is going to descend from heaven and walk through our problems with us. God with us means 
God suffering with us rather than God bringing us up to be with him. At least in this mortal, mortal plane, that's what it means. The idea for me is supported by the fact that Nephi, when he wants to know the meaning of his father's vision of the tree of life, he's given a vision where he sees the tree in isolation. And he's asked a question, what do you want? And he says, oh, I want the thing I want the most of all is to know the interpretation of this tree because he can see it's the most desirable thing anybody could ever witness. And so he, so he asks, what is the interpretation? And the angel replies with a question. He says, do you know the meaning of the condescension of God? I, and I mentioned this in my uh, special episode on Memorial Day in the temple, but I'm going to repeat it here in case you missed that because... Uh, that got a little bit less play since it wasn't part of the Come Follow Me curriculum. The angel replies with a definition of what the condescension of God is. So he shows Jesus being born. The next thing Nephi sees is Jesus being born on the earth. And then when the angel, the next time the angel asks, do you know the meaning of the tree of life? Nephi does know. So once he's been instructed about the condescension of God, then he knows the meaning of the tree, which is the love of God. And to me, that's a powerful testimony that God's condescension is a witness of his love, and it's very instructive about what his love is. And then Jesus witnesses the ministry of, or I'm sorry, Nephi witnesses the ministry of Jesus and the sufferings and death of Jesus, and finally the victory of Jesus over the great and abominable church, or the dominions of Satan on the earth. And he sees that all these things are connected, and they're all connected with the condescension of God, meaning the fact that God is willing to come down and live among us. So all of these ideas have been deepening in my mind and teaching me that the way God shows his love is by suffering with us. And this idea reached its head when I started thinking about, okay, what what exactly do I think that God thinks of me? How is God feeling about me right now? I've heard it testified too many times in church that God knows me by name. And when I was younger, I used to wonder about that. Does he really know me? Uh, God has so many people to be concerned with. And I guess it's only been in the last few years that I realize in order for God to be all-knowing, he not only has to know me, but he has to know my entire history and Jesus took this many steps further when he said, look, look the, at the lilies of the field, how they are arrayed. Solomon in all of his glory wasn't so finely dressed. Consider the birds, these sparrows, they fall to the ground. Today they're flying around, to, tomorrow they fall to the ground. Not one of them can hit the ground without God taking note of it. And yet you're worth more than many sparrows. And I think Jesus could have gone many steps farther than that and said that the sparrow was an example of something very small for them. But in, in modern days, he might have said, consider all of the, the tiny things that make up our world, even the particles, even the subatomic particles that make up our world. In order for God to know everything, he has to be aware of what's happening with every particle of the universe at every moment. And he can't forget any of it. Now, I'm a programmer by trade, and so you're going to hear a little bit of computer science theory right now, but I've thought about that. 
idea. That idea has, has deepened with me to the point where I really believe it. I really believe that God is aware of every particle. And not only is he aware of it, but he can't forget its past state, and he can't be unaware of its future state. And I thought, how, if you had that much memory, where would you put it? How do you store those memories? It's an interesting question, because in order to know something, you have to, number one, observe it, and number two, be able to recall it when you want to remember it. That's, that's the way we think of knowing something. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why God says, my ways are not your ways. So bear with me. I know this is a little bit abstract, but um, the hard drive that you would need, so to speak, in order to store information about all of the universe would be bigger than the universe itself if you wanted to you wanted to know the spin and the direction and the orientation of every quark and you wanted to know the charge of every atom the the hard drive you would need to store all that information would be bigger than the information itself and so therefore the only conclusion for me to reach is that god lives outside of time and the universe itself is God's brain, is God's memory. The universe itself is where he stores that information about what's going on. And so he can access, he has some way of seeing everything simultaneously that doesn't involve having to look at it through visible light and wait for light speed to bring that image to his eyes. He has some way of being aware of everything that's going on. And he, have some, he has some way of transcending time so that not only is he aware of what's going on right now, but he's aware of everything that has occurred. He's aware of everything that has occurred on a spiritual plane and not just our physical plane of existence. And he can never forget because it's always before him. Everything is present for God. So this is leading me to what I'm going to say about the atonement. I hope, I hope it's made sense so far. And I know it's a little bit perhaps uh, metaphysical or philosophical, or it seems a little bit out of the realm of things that really affect our lives. But I promise I have a point. And the point is this, I've always been taught that Jesus Christ suffered an in infinite atonement. But I made the assumption that the infinite atonement was something that occurred in a finite amount of time. That Jesus Christ performed the atonement in the Garden of Gethsemane and then in the time that it took Peter, James, and John to fall asleep a couple of times, he completed it. And then as Elder Bruce R. McConkie said in his final conference talk that, uh, again, when he was on the cross, the, the sufferings returned to him. They came upon him again. So in those two brief times, Jesus suffered for the sins of mankind, and the infinite number of people that there are led to the, the infinite amount of suffering that he went through in a finite amount of time. And that's been my idea of the atonement my whole life, until recently. And when I started to have this idea about what God is, then I started to rethink that. And I thought, not only does God know me, but he knows every particle that has made me up. And not only the particles that made up my body, but the, the particles, as, as Joseph Smith said, spirit is also matter, it's just more finely refined. And so he knows the particles that have made up my spiritual body as well. And he knows the soul that has inhabited those particles. He knows me so intimately. How could he forget any of the interactions he's had with me? And how can I believe that I haven't had many, many interactions with him if he is truly my father? He has raised me in a spiritual sense. So he knows me so deeply. 
and he has spent an eternity getting to know me. And why would he be limited in the amount of time that he can spend with me or that he has been able to spend with me or that he will spend with me in the future? All of these things are present for him. And there is no limit to the amount of time he has because he lives in eternity. So that's how well God knows me. And that is what he is willing to do for me. What would you not do for someone you've spent so much time with? And so therefore, as we see, as we saw last week, Jesus spent the entire chapter 17 of John talking about he and the Father are one, and how if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Sometimes we get the idea that Jesus is, represents mercy and the Father represents justice, that the Father wants to send us or has to send us because of his justice. He has to send us to hell for our sins. And because Jesus is our advocate, he's the source of mercy and God reluctantly agrees that only because Jesus is pleading for us that he can release us from the fate that would otherwise inevitably be ours. Now, I don't know that too many of us has, have chosen that view, but I know that I kind of believed that just by default because I'd never really examined it. But as I, as I realized that Jesus and God the Father are one, they're both the same. Any words you could describe, any sentence you could utter to describe Jesus could also be used to describe the Father. The Father is merciful and loving, just as Jesus is. And he sees us in exactly the same way as Jesus does. He walks beside us as often as Jesus does. And therefore, the Father knows what we suffer the same way that Jesus does. And how does he know that? So, all of these things led me to believe that Jesus, there had to become a point where Jesus ascended to the level of the Father's awareness, where he, he went from the earth, an earthly awareness of you know, perhaps knowing everything to a godlike state where not only did he know everything, but he knew what it was like from all sides of everything. Or to, be, or to put another way, he not only knew what we were feeling, but he felt what we were feeling. And when I realized that, I started to see the atonement not as an event, but as a doorway that Jesus passed through in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as, he, and as he drew closer to that doorway, he recognized how painful it would be to pass through it, and there was no coming back. And at that moment, he said to God the Father, he said, wow, if there's any other way for me to accomplish my goal of becoming like you and being one with you forever and being perfect, achieving my telos, my purpose, my ultimate manifestation of my, the purpose of my creation, then I would take that way if I could. But nevertheless, I understand you know more than I do, and thy will, not my will, be done. And Jesus began to walk through this door, and as he did, his, his consciousness was expanded. And he began to not only understand us and understand the sufferings that we had, but to actually feel them the way that God the Father feels them. And I truly believe this about God our Father, that he not just observes our suffering, but he feels it more truly than we do because we have so many distractions and addictions and anesthetics that we put in the way of our own suffering. And God doesn't have any of those things. 
He feels every ounce of the suffering that we both choose and don't choose to put into our lives, whereas we feel some subset of that. And this is the moment, the atonement is the moment where Jesus began to live that sort of existence, where he began to transcend time. And for all the infinite number of God's creations, Jesus began to not only observe and to know, but to feel and experience all of their feelings and pains and joys in order to, in order to live the kind of life that God lives and truly have eternal life. Jesus had to truly understand his children. And in order to do that, he had to pass through this door where he was willing to open himself up to that level of infinite suffering. And that suffering never ended. That's what it means to be God, is to, is to be willing to continually walk through this suffering forever. Nevertheless, in order to feel the greatest amount of joy, Jesus had to open himself to the greatest amount of suffering, and there was no going back. And this is why when, as Jesus was being scourged and, and led to his, his death, he was so physically weak because his, his body, this earthly shell, his, his mortal vehicle had been so overwhelmed by the, the task that he had taken on, which was to comprehend within him all knowledge and all experience forever. This is my view of the atonement, that it was the moment at which Jesus decided that he was willing, because he loves you and me so much, he was willing to feel everything that we feel forever and never stop. He describes his experience in the Doctrine and Covenants, and he says that this, the pain, you don't, how, how difficult to bear, you know not. It caused God, even the greatest of all, to suffer and to and would that I might not drink of this bitter cup and shrink and to bleed from every pore. But he doesn't say that he he stopped suffering that. In fact, when when in the same book of scripture, when he describes where the wicked are sent to, he says, it's called endless suffering, because endless is my name and because eternal is my name. And there are those who look at it, but it is straightway shut up again. In other words, man, when he wants to see endless suffering, he can only abide it for a short time. In my opinion, Jesus is drawing a contrast between how man experiences things that are endless and how he experiences things that are endless. I can't see any other alternative to the, the idea that I've just given you about what the atonement means. And, and still be consistent with the mercy and the love and the justice of God, then that Jesus and our Father in heaven and possibly our Mother in heaven are feeling everything that we feel right now and knowing all of our thoughts and experiencing all of our pains. This is what God with us means. This is, what, this is the experience that earned Jesus the name Emmanuel, was his willingness to not only suffer these things, an infinite atonement once during the brief time of the, that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, but walk through a door that would enable him to feel it forever and through which he could never go back. After this experience that was so painful and such a manifestation of his ultimate love, then came the illegal trial by night of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. 
And the first heartbreak that Jesus had to suffer was seeing his friend Judas appear with soldiers. Now, the Sanhedrin, we talked about how popular Jesus was. They had been, and the Sanhedrin is a group of 70 Jewish elders who exercise legal and spiritual authority over the Jews. And they'd been reluctant to seize Jesus during the day or in public because he was so popular that their armed might, their guards, would have been quickly overwhelmed. There would have been no respect for their authority because Jesus was seen as more important than they were. They, they had witness of that when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple. And Annas was a man, A-N-N-A-S, who had been uh, the high priest. The high priest was a rotating calling. You didn't keep it for long. And he had been high priest 20 years before, but he still controlled the the temple. He controlled this, this trade around changing money at the temple and selling these sacrificial animals. I mean, this was his personal fiefdom. He considered the temple one of his streams of income. It was how he was so inordinately powerful and wealthy. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was currently the high priest. Now, Jesus, uh, by law, first of all, this, this trial was illegal by Jewish law for many reasons. First of all, uh, a capital trial had rules that didn't apply to other trials. Uh, in one case, or in one uh, example, in order to try someone for their life, you had to fast, the Sanhedrin had to fast for a day before the trial could begin. They didn't do that. They couldn't have a trial at night. They couldn't have a trial in secret. And John records that the witnesses didn't agree. The witnesses came in and they were giving differing testimonies and they tried to get them to agree. So obviously they'd been put up to it. And Jesus, they asked Jesus what he said. And Jesus said, there are plenty of witnesses to everything that I said. Why don't you ask them? Jesus was aware of the Jewish law and he knew that none of the false stories about him would agree. And so he said, why don't you ask the other people? And this is one more example of how this trial was illegal because the accused cannot be forced to testify against himself. This wasn't an idea that originated with the Fifth Amendment to the American Constitution. Uh, this idea was enshrined in Jewish, ancient Jewish jurisprudence as well. They, he would not have been pressured to, especially in a capital case, to give testimony against himself and put himself at risk of dying, being executed. Jesus was also mistreated. Uh, he replied truthfully to one of the questions, but not necessarily deferentially. And he was struck for it in the face. And he said, if I have spoken wrong, then tell me where I was wrong. But if I've spoken well, why did you hit me in the face? And so he pointed out that this, Jesus pointed out during the proceedings that it was illegal. He made, he made it obvious that he was aware that he was being tried illegally. Finally, the, well, there, there may be more examples, but these are the examples I'll give. Finally, the verdict was anonymous, sorry, not anonymous, <laughs> it was unanimous. And uh, the, every one of the Sanhedrin voted to kill Jesus. And that was because they didn't have a quorum there. Uh, John mentioned in chapter 12 that there were many of the elders of the Jews who believed in Jesus, but they didn't have the courage to come out openly in favor of him. Nevertheless, Caiaphas and Annas probably were aware of who these people were and they were evidently not invited to this midnight trial of Jesus or post-midnight trial of Jesus. 
Finally, and most importantly of all, Jesus was, the, the crime they convicted him for was blasphemy. Now, this was not a crime. First of all, the Jews didn't have the right under Roman law to execute anyone for blasphemy. Well, to execute anyone, period. But uh, blasphemy under Jewish law was a capital crime, but not under Roman law. So the fact that the Jews couldn't put anyone to death meant that if they convicted Jesus of blasphemy, then they would go to the Romans to actually have the sentence carried out, and the Romans would say, well, no, we're not going to kill him for blasphemy. That's not a capital crime. So it's interesting, and as we'll see when Jesus is brought before Pilate in next week's lesson, uh, it's interesting to note that when the Jews arrive, the crime that they've convicted him of no longer exists. He's no longer guilty of blasphemy. He's guilty of sedition and treason. And nevertheless, Jesus is convicted of blasphemy in his trial before the Sanhedrin. And the most telling detail of all is that none of the things that he said were actually blasphemous. The question, and this, this point is made by James Talmadge and Jesus the Christ, the question was never even considered that everything he was saying is true because he's actually the Son of God and the Messiah. Uh, I, a few weeks ago, I recommended to you a debate between Ben Shapiro and one of his Christian guests who pointed out that uh, Jesus made a good case for himself as the Messiah. And Ben Shapiro, a Jewish uh, commentator, he said, it's not actually blasphemous to call yourself the Messiah. There are many people who've done it. So that's an interesting thing to note, is that making a claim of being the Messiah is simply calling yourself this, this prophesied king. It's not declaring yourself to be God. Now, Jesus said, when, uh, in, this is in John chapter 18, when Judas brought these soldiers and they said, we're looking for Jesus, Jesus said in, in chapter 18, John 18, verse 5, he said, I am. Now, this is written in Greek, and so the, the grammar is similar to, in this particular case, what we have in English, which is two words, I and am. But in Hebrew, that's not always that way. Sometimes I am is just I, and then the, the verb is skipped, and you could say, you know, I am hungry, and you would just say I hungry, for example, in Hebrew. But in Greek, you would say, I and am. However, the name of God, I am that I am, is actually the word for am. The I can be left off in many languages. The subject, if the verb is conjugated such that it, that it uh, presupposes the subject, then the subject isn't required. So in Hebrew, the word eye means I am, in the sense that I exist. It's emphasizing the existence instead of just describing. So... The name of God is this emphatic form of existence, this, this word saying, I am. And we don't know what Hebrew words that Jesus used that, rendered the, that were rendered in Greek as I am, but we can assume that Jesus said, Eye. And as Jesus gave his name to Moses at the burning bush, he said, Eye, Asher, Eye. I am that I am. This is the name that you are to tell the Israelites in Egypt who sent you. And when Moses, I I mentioned this a few weeks ago, because Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And I made this point then that 
when Moses was speaking directly to God, the name of God was Eye. And when Moses arrived in Egypt and was testifying about God, God's name was Yahweh. So in one sense, or in one, in one instance, the name of God is I am. When Moses arrives and he's speaking about God, it's a prophet talking. The name of God is He is. That's Yahweh. That's significant because the name of God changes according to who's speaking. If a prophet's talking, it's totally appropriate to say Yahweh, He exists, the, the, the eternal one, the one who is uncreated. That's the implication of the name Yahweh. But when God is talking, the name is Eye, I am. I am the one who exists forever. And you only get to hear this if you're a prophet talking to God himself. Nevertheless, Jesus has used these words, I believe, even though the New Testament is in Greek, I believe this is the Hebrew that's behind it. Jesus is saying, Eye. And anyone who hears that is getting the words that were only spoken to Moses at the burning bush. Every other time in the Hebrew scriptures, when the name of God is mentioned, it's he is, not I am. And that's why it was so shocking. And that's why when Jesus first uttered it, they immediately picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus says this again. And last week, uh, I I failed to mention, there's a, a point at which the disciples are talking about who Jesus is. And he says, I want you all to know that I am. He tells them very explicitly who he is. They receive his name in the same way Moses received it, which is Eye. And so these soldiers arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is Jesus testifying of his, for the first time after his atonement of his identity. And the, the soldiers, the, this is very significant, the soldiers are knocked to the ground. They fall on the ground. By the, source of, by, the, by the force of this pronouncement. Jesus just saying the word, Eye, I am, and they all fall to the ground. And to me, that's the reason they fell to the ground, either because Jesus uttered the word with such power or because the realization hit them so forcefully that they lost their strength. I want to make one more mention of something that happened in the trial of Jesus, and that is Caiaphas is right in Jesus's face. And he's talking to him about, this is in uh, Mark chapter 14. Caiaphas is talking to Jesus about Jesus's identity. And in verse 61, Mark chapter 14, verse 61, Caiaphas says, art thou the Christ, the son of the blessed? So he's, because their witnesses aren't performing for them, he's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And finally, Jesus says this, and this is, this is the reason we've been talking so much about Daniel chapter 7, right here. Mark fourteen sixty two. Jesus says, I am. You know the significance of those words now. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now this is, this is imagery right from Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus first says, Eye, I am the one that you've heard referred to in your scriptures as Yahweh, I am he, but I am, I'm not going to give you that name of he is. I'm going to say I am. You are in the presence of deity right now and henceforth. So that's one aspect of what Jesus says. And then he gives this response. Henceforth, you shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, this is such a well-known image to Caiaphas and everyone in attendance. They all know their, their Hebrew scriptures. They all know Daniel chapter 7, very well. 
And when you talk about the Son of Man coming in the clouds and sitting on the right hand of power, this evokes one chapter in the Hebrew Scriptures, Daniel chapter 7, and it's it's not hard to place. This is the point I want to make, and I've made this analogy before, but hopefully most of you will know this reference. This is a movie quote. It's as if Jesus had just said, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepared to die. Okay? He has given a quote from a cultural reference that they all understand, and they all know exactly who he is in this quote, and they know exactly what it means. Now here's a a very important point. If they know exactly who Jesus is in this scenario, then they know exactly what Jesus is saying about who they are. Let's examine Daniel chapter 7 one last time. It's a vision, it's a dream that Daniel has where these beasts, these terrible, destructive, and evil beasts arise out of the sea and begin trampling and destroying everywhere they go. And And Daniel is later told explicitly, these beasts represent the governments of men. So Jesus is saying, when he says, you shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud and sitting at the right hand of power, the the Son of Man has given all judgment. And the beasts represent what happens to men when they give unbridled sway to their own natural impulses. And this is the moment at which the Jewish society has reached the pinnacle of its evil, in which instead of being the the kingdom of priests and a holy nation that God had called it to be, instead of being a light unto the Gentiles that it was intended to be, a vehicle through which God could teach his truths to the entire world and invite them to come into unto his holy city and to serve in his holy temple. That was the intention of God when he set Israel apart as a nation. Jesus is saying, you have now reached the fullness. You are now ripe in iniquity. You have become the beast that is going to trample the Son of Man. And you're going to see that no matter what happens, you can trample me. But I will be be lifted up in power. And all judgment will be given unto my hand. And you are the beast, and I am the Son of Man. You are the evil governments of men. You are no longer the kingdom of priests and holy nation. You're no longer God's people at all. You have completely fallen from your calling, what God intended you to be. And now instead, you've judged yourself. And this is what I was talking about when I talked about the gravity, the the way that the heavier object is the one around which the lighter object will orbit. Jesus was not being judged by the Sanhedrin. They were judging themselves by putting Jesus on trial. Jesus was unaffected. As John taught us so eloquently and so masterfully in John chapter 12, the moment at which Jesus was killed was the moment he was crowned because dying was his destiny in order to become everything that God had intended him to be. He had to die in order to be resurrected and he had to die in order to judge all of the kingdoms of this world, including especially the people of Israel who had fallen so far from what God intended them to be. So we, God is not in orbit around us. We are in orbit around God. And we can choose 
whether to believe that he is the kind of God that has infinite mercy towards us, that understands all of our sufferings, that is constantly thinking of us because he is incapable of ever forgetting about us. And we can choose to be in orbit around him. Or we can do what the Jewish people did and what Judas did, and that is let our pride slowly take us away from that path to the point where we're no longer willing to believe in such a being. And then we're lost to ourselves and to others, We don't have any more the capability to bring forth the fruit that Jesus needs us to bring forth. If we will believe in him and and love him, then we will place ourselves in our rightful place, which is the orbit around him, and turn all our thoughts toward him, our example, our Savior, and our God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.